The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. We're not allowed to have fun anymore. So lieu of fun, let's at least not be bored. Come on, Greek chorus, it's time to gather. And we're live. It is uh, Monday, February 21st, 2022. I think it is day zero of the year zero in the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Democratic (laughs) Republics. Um, uh, It is five o'clock Eastern time. It is, I think, midnight or 1 a.m. Estonian time. Is that right, Thomas? Midnight. Midnight. It is 2 p.m. California time where Tim Miller is here, uh, but uh, not visible. He's trying a different computer. He'll be back in a second. And uh, we are not allowed to have fun anymore. And the people of Ukraine are really not allowed to have fun anymore. Uh, We were scheduled to chat with Tim in our usual kind of lighthearted way, but things then got a little heavy. Um, so I asked Tomas to join us, uh, as well. And, uh, Tomas, um, let's start with you. Uh, how ugly is it and how much hope, if any, should we hold out that this is all just a bluff and, uh, we will, uh, return to normal and our regularly scheduled programming shortly? Well... Putin gave a speech that perhaps only, I hate to say this, but but only Adolf Hitler could have given, justifying uh, bringing, invading Ukraine because historically the people of Ukraine have always really been Russian. And it's uh, how everyone and everybody in Ukraine is a criminal, everyone who supported independence is criminal, that all of the countries of the Soviet Union are all fake, and they all really belong to the Russian Empire that was unfairly destroyed first by Lenin, and then by Stalin, and then culminating in the independence of all of these countries in 1991 bad. And to be clear, it's bad because it implies uh, immediate action to reabsorb all or part of Ukraine and long-term ambition to reabsorb other former Soviet uh, republics? Well, it was the speech of a madman. I mean, it was just out to lunch which is, I think, the universal uh, opinion. You can watch it on YouTube in English, and you just sit there, and this is crazy. Yeah, I mean, he really, the the part of it that I was stunned by was his sort of irritation at Lenin for the creation of these uh, ethnic republics within the great Russian empire. I mean, it just had this kind of hundred year old, you know, and then the commies fucked everything up. We had a perfectly good empire here. It was, you know, Russians beat up on ethnic minorities. And then, you know, first Lenin and Stalin came and created these fake internal borders. And then, gosh, they turned out to be real. It's such an injustice. you know, it would be like a British uh, prime minister, you know, complaining about the idea that the Raj had a kind of an independent uh, borders, right? 
Well, I, I, I was struck by the similarity to um, the, those televised Trump cabinet meetings um, and just like the way that he dressed down uh, the folks who did not give the answer the correct way and everyone had to praise him so effusively. Um, uh, but I was, while we have Thomas, I was interested in his response. Have you seen the video Senator Chris Murphy uh, put out? Uh, it's it's pretty interesting. I'll, I'll, I'll do my best to summarize it. He argues that that Putin is playing a very weak hand, and that we should, you know, be interpreting the situation in that context, which is that basically, you know, Putin has kind of set himself up as promising this sort of reunification of various sort of Russian ethnic, you know, groups and territories, uh, but the Ukrainians basically rejected him. So some of the other uh, of your former neighbors uh, in Estonia, and now he's forced to either engage in what would likely be a pretty catastrophic for Russia invasion or back down. And, and, you know, it was, I guess the best way to put a rose colored glasses on, on the situation. I'd be interested in your take on that. Well, I'll follow what another, New a fun guest, Dmitry Alperovich said, this is going to be bloody, bloody, bloody and brutal with the same kind of tactics employed in Chechnya and he calculates massive casualties. Putin himself <clears throat> uh, confirmed the U.S. intelligence report that they had killed lists saying today, this evening, our time, that, well, we have lists and we have all these people who are accountable for crimes. So, I mean, he, it's going to be bad. And I just uh, read how some Ukrainian mothers are putting their children's blood type on their winter coats so in case something happens to them. I mean, they are going, if they do an air war and they bomb, it's going to be uh, tens of thousands of casualties, if not more. And the problem is that if we look at the behavior of the Russian military, be it in, in well, Syria, in Chechnya, uh, probably, though we don't know who, who was firing, but in Kazakhstan just a couple of weeks ago, I mean, peaceful protest is not going to be tolerated. They will simply open fire. And so that's how uh, that's how what their so-called pacification looks like, and so that's the big fear: is massive, massive uh, civilian casualties on top of the, uh, if not numerical, at least the uh, the vast superiority and weaponry of the um, of the Russian military, which is, I mean, they've put so much money in the past ten years to modernize that they may not have as, you know, they don't have that many troops and they don't have, they don't have the discipline, but, but um, they have incredibly effective weapons and that's what the fear is. Um, so it, actually, so we have um, actually two experts here um, uh, for the question that I want to ask, which is, um, Tomas, uh, what is the, I mean, obviously, public opinion is not um, is not a monolith. But what is the basic temperature of the Russian domestic audience for 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 something like what you're describing? Um, and then also, uh, Tim, what is where do you where do you think the Republican Party is going to go um, uh, when if uh, our fears are, are borne out. Well, the Russian public has been kind of uh, uh, pass. I mean, looked at this and not really thought it would happen. The, uh, the state media has been absolutely hysterical. Absolutely. I mean, the, the Ukrainians are completely dehumanized as dogs and vermin and all this other stuff. And it's really awful, but, but at the same time, the, it seemed that no one believed this would happen. 
and even some of the most sort of um, looking at some of the uh, Western correspondents or expats there who were, were constantly tweeting, oh, nothing's going to happen, nothing's going to happen, are kind of shocked right now. Um, they're not going to have too many conscripts there because they have so many sort of what contract soldiers, as they're called, who get paid a fair bit of money to fight. So you won't have the same kind of public reaction with a lot of, you know, Af Afghanistan, you had, you know, these people coming back, uh, I mean, bodies coming back. There will be bodies, but there will, they will not, it's not the same thing as having kids or conscripts coming back. I say on the Republican Party, I don't know what it's like in the U.S., but certainly the Republicans at Munich this weekend were quite pro-Ukrainian and anti-Putin, including Lindsey Graham. So I, it'll but be- that's kind of a self-selected sample, right? If yeah. you're a CPAC Republican, you didn't go to Munich. Yeah. I mean, my take on the Republicans is there's two levels, right? At the first level, the Republican position will be whatever Biden is, does is bad, right? So, uh, you know, I think there will be unanimity um, within the party on that. Uh, I think some people will probably criticize them for not doing enough and some for doing too much, but they'll have uh, unity on the fact that he was wrong. Um, the, what is below that, the, the divide, I think, is more interesting. And uh, Tomas hits on this. I, the establishment D.C. Republican crowd, you know, which ranges from everybody from you know, Mitt, who is basically hostile to Trump, all the way over to like McCarthy, you know, or someone who is pretty pro-Trump, that whole range of the establishment is going to be, you know, decently bellicose, not not wanting to put troops on the ground, but wanting to have as, as aggressive of a response as possible that is anti-Putin. Uh, then among the elites, there's a, there's a rump group of, you know, pure magus, your Peter Thiel crowd, um, Blake Masters, uh, uh, Vance, Holly, uh, et cetera, Tucker, you know, they are going to be, we should do nothing. We shouldn't care about this. I, I sense that they have the majority with, among rank and file Republicans. Like if you actually had to have a referendum on this at the Iowa caucuses, I, I think that the Hawley position would win out over the McConnell position uh, and this is another example of why Trump took over the party in the first place, because he has this kind of reptilian animal instinct for where the base voter is that is when it's and where that's in conflict with the old guard. So on that point, I I tend to agree with you uh, that there's, you know, that this is a related to the sort of you know, the border stuff where there's a Republican establishment position that's very centrist and bipartisan. And then there is the actual views of base Republican voters, which consistently manages to shock the establishment. I have been somewhat surprised by Mitch McConnell, who seems to have outflanked that consensus a little bit from the left, or at least from the uh, uh, bipartisan establishment side, he's refused to criticize the administration. Um, he's basically said he thinks the president is handling this pretty well. What do you think he's trying to do here, given that he never does anything without a, a cunning set of reasons? My that's a good question. I haven't thought that deeply about McConnell's uh, posture on this. My instinct says that McConnell does not really see this as a relevant issue as it relates to whether he's going to be the majority leader next year, um, unless it's a worst case scenario type situation about what happens in Europe and it, it destabilizes the whole, you know, in our domestic political uh, status. And so he probably is, you know, if you look at what McConnell's actions, even during the Trump era, on the main political issues, he would sop to Trump. 
on these secret on the issues that are kind of beltway issues uh, that didn't really matter that much to voters a lot of times he would go separate from trump and you know and advance kind of traditional you know reagan type republican views and i think that's what's happening here and i think that if it becomes a campaign issue then you'll see mcconnell start to tactically moving towards the critiquing biden etc as we move into the summer that's my instinct But meanwhile, I'll say that uh, you know, Zirinovsky the other day predicted war would begin at 4 a.m. on the 22nd of February. 4 a.m. is, uh, well, in Ukraine time is uh, in uh, three and a half hours. Uh, but I don't know if maybe you sung Moscow time, so that would be in two and a half hours. All right. <laughs> so, Thomas, can I ask a question like is it is it absurd to think that um this is a kind of off-ramp um to think that okay he declared um he he's declared the independence of two russian enclaves he the military moves in occupies it uh military flanking on uh in belarus and just maintaining the pressure without actually you know bombing kiev um because he will have accomplished what he well it's very hard to know exactly what he's trying well, to accomplish but it, the first point is it's not that they're moving in he's basically just uh, legitimated from his point of view, the presence of the Russian troops that have been there since 2014, which is whether they moved in after uh, sort of the Donbass, uh, the so-called separatists were getting their ass kicked, asses mm. kicked, and then he moved the troops in, and that's where the mm. why the line is where it is. And if you recall, there was this horrible battle of Donetsk, with all kinds of with with that was fought with. It was not fought by separatists or anything. That was fought by real hardcore army. So that was the first point. I mean, the, thing, the question we have now is when he, uh, I mean, the, will he recognize these entities in their current borders or in the official borders? Because what you have is, I mean, Donba, Luhansk and Donetsk Oblast are, are, I mean, they're about three times the size of their current right. land holdings. And so uh, if you if and there are some who say, well, that means we recognize all of every all the oblasts, but that would require war. I mean, because it's two thirds of the areas held by Ukraine. So that we don't know yet. And so, um, I mean, this is all unfolding at the moment or in the morning. Um, but this is the other thing I wanted to raise, which I thought was kind of wimpy, is that the uh, Biden administration announced that they would sanction the people of in Donbass. I mean, this is they didn't do anything. I mean, they're thugs, they're mafioso and they're warlords, but they have done nothing. This is a decision made in and by the Kremlin. Um, and so I don't quite understand why sanctioning them at this point does anything at all. Because they haven't done anything. They just got recognized. I mean, that's why sanction them. And that's the... I can't tell whether Biden's reluctance for, you know, more aggressive preemptive sanctions is a ideological view held by him and his advisors and Sullivan, or whether it's kind of a sop to the other European nations that don't want more aggressive action until it's absolutely necessary. What's your take on that? Yeah. I would say that in this at this point, the European countries, most of them would take the lead of the United States. Uh, and I can basically imagine that the reaction in at least the eastern part of NATO and the European Union is like, what? Why are you sanctioning them? I mean, who made the decision? Who? I mean, the whole thing today. First, the 
ridiculous meeting they had during the day, which was uh, probably for your early morning, but you, he had his so-called security council meeting and they all stood up, everyone stood up in turn saying, well, we think it's time to recognize, except for the poor guy, head of the uh, SVR, Narishkin, who said, I completely support uh, joining these territories to the, to Russia, whereupon Putin says, no, 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 we're not talking about it. He didn't read the script. And also the other funny thing about it, which has been pointed out as well, is that Shoigu, the Minister of Defense, uh, he had his watch on, but it was at a different, it was like four hours before the official live thing they were doing. So it was quite clear. They have a history of the watch with watches because okay today they did this thing that was supposedly live but you know the guy you can see on his watch that it's four hours earlier uh, but there was also the head of the Russian Orthodox Church who um, who had a like six hundred thousand dollar gold watch a couple of years ago and he was and he, they it was a picture of him with it and then it was then this caused the kind of uh, Ruhaha. So it was airbrushed out of his off his wrist. But what they forgot to airbrush was the very the, the reflection of the gold watch in in the very shiny table that he was at. So they got rid of the watch, but the gold watch was still reflected. So it's kind of so I have problems So just uh, about sanctions. Um so um, the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, was for a couple of years at Yale Law School, and I did talk to him a bunch about sanctions. Um, I remember his concern at the time, and which may explain what's going on right now, is that the thing about sanctions is that you want to keep some powder dry. You want to be able to, like, once you, once, you, once you cut everything off, you don't have anything else you can do. Um, and so that there's a, it seemed as though, um, at least to me, that there was a, there was a desire to engage in incremental um, sanctioning. So as a way of um, giving incentives to, uh, to the Russian Federation to, to, to not accelerate, because if you just drop it all right now, um, then the argument would be, look, well, they would do, look, they're, they're, they're sanctioning us, might as well just go for it. I don't know if that's naive or not, but that's what seemed to me what was happening. That idea is good, but the problem is that the decisions, the actions have all been from the Kremlin and all that, I mean, and what has happened in the so-called DNR and LNR is that they have been recognized. They didn't do anything. They have not joined Russia. This is just that there's these statelets where there's a decision to recognize their existence. So, I mean, sanctioning them makes no sense. I mean, there are lots, there's a whole range of things you can do and you can step up, all, you can do all kinds of things. You don't have to hit everything all at once. So that's probably not a smart idea. Nonetheless, I mean, everything from the tech sanctions that have been talked about to the uh, financial sanctions and the banks that can be selectively done and and then the second uh, the, the secondary market for bonds and and that's before you even get to sanctioning uh, people freezing these uh, freezing uh, all of these government officials, salaries, I mean, it's, or I mean, not salaries, they're assets in the West, and, and then you get the visa bans, and then you get the visa bans for the oligarchs, and then you get the visa bans for their mistresses and for their kids going to school. I mean, there, you can just, you can ratchet this up, you know, do one a week, and it'll, it'll be six months before you get to the full range. Was that a secondary market for bongs? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Tim, I want to ask you about the secondary market for bongs. Okay. Um, when you. Uh, <laughs> it's vibrant. There's. It's you vibrant. Know, because of the, you know, shortages, supply chain. Yeah. Um, so I'm 
interested in the domestic politics of this here. Uh, I'm going to ask Tomas about the domestic politics of it in Eastern European countries in a moment. But, you know, you started this by saying you think Mitch McConnell will be responsible unless this turns into an election issue. And right now, unlike Afghanistan, it's not really you know, clear that Biden made much of a choice here that had impact here. Do you think this plays badly for Biden or do you think it's just something that happens far away that people don't give a shit about? I think the latter, unfortunately. I mean, I wish that was not the case, but even among kind of elite environs, I'm surprised how much little care there is about what is happening here. You know, forget Me too. what happens among, you know, kind of your average voter. Uh, you know, just uh, look, Bullock traffic, for example, on Ukraine articles is not gangbusters. Okay. Like uh, we're doing much better when we're writing about Steve Bond, Steve Bannon's podcast than we're writing about what's happening in Ukraine for better or worse. So, you know, there's no evidence in the polls that people care about this. Now, look, obviously the wild card is if the worst case scenario that Thomas was laying out, you know, massive bloodshed, uh, you know, it destabilizes other things in Europe that has you know, long tail effects on what's happening here. Again, I was joking earlier, but seriously, back to supply chain and other, you know, economic impacts, uh, gas, oil prices continue to go up. Uh, it could have a that could have a negative effect on Biden, but that's like a third order impact of this fourth order, um, not not the main issue. And it's hard for me to see that changing, really, um, I, especially because as terrible as this is, there's kind of a bipartisan consensus to do nothing. And that's why when Thomas says this is sort of wimpy, well, it's wimpy because that's what the people want um, in our democracy, like they're asking for a wimpy response to this. Now, maybe that will change, but I just, you know, don't see any, anything besides a very catastrophic, you know, actions um, in Ukraine changing that between now and November. Does anybody, wait, I, I'm sorry, just does anybody think it's a good idea um, for the Amer Americans to send troops or, uh, I mean, it just seems like a terrible idea. So it does, it seems as if like the bipartisan consensus in this case is actually a good thing. I mean, but, but please correct me if I'm wrong. No one's sending any troops to Ukraine. No NATO countries are doing do I mean, different countries are sending various forms of arms. Uh, I mean, much of Europe is doing that except for Germany, which is sending helmets. Uh, I mean, that's the big scandal here is like, no, we're not going to send them anything to defend themselves, but we will give them helmets. And that kind of is a European kind of like you know, face palm. Um, and to answer your question about Eastern Europe or Europe, which is, I think there's a big divide now uh, between uh, the, the, the countries that uh, stand strongly with Ukraine, and those are basically all of the East Europeans except for Hungary, uh, and then the Brits and the, and the Netherlands and Denmark, and then the kind of southern countries, France, Italy, uh, they're against, they're like very cautious. Germany is out of this thing completely uh, because of the complicating factor of their two-term chancellor, Gerhard Schroeder, who is probably like the poster boy for corruption of European elites. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean. He's, One of them. Well, no, he's the poster boy. I mean, you, everyone else. You, I invented think... the term Schroederization <laughs> to, to, as, as a general phenomenon. And you have, you know, prime minister of, former prime minister of France, beyond the, former prime minister of Finland, Liponen, I mean, the former foreign minister of Austria. I mean, it's like, there's just so much of this stuff. Uh, and it's it's been very effective. You buy up these politicians and um, 
and then they become your their high recognition lobbyists and writing articles and making speeches saying Russia is wonderful. It's become quite embarrassing for the Social Democratic Party in uh, in Germany, where I mean that's the leading party in the government. So there, there a lot. There's a lot of sort of uh, face palming there too between what Schroeder says. But it's, and does. but it's not like the current chancellor is shrouding himself in glory either. No, I, no. I, and I do wonder. Uh, with respect to Eastern European opinion, you have one country, Hungary, that is essentially carved out, which is a NATO member that is essentially carved out a completely independent position on this. Uh, how united, you know, if the tanks roll in at 4 a.m. this morning or the bombs stop, start dropping at 4 a.m. this morning, how united is Europe going to be? What other countries, like, let's say Biden goes ahead with a whole array of sanctions and, you know, uh, how, how many of the European countries are going to be how on board? Well, uh, the big worry in uh, countries highly dependent upon gas is that there will be a retaliatory, there will be retaliatory measures cutting off gas. Now, how much Russia can sustain that herself is a different question because they're making a lot of money off the gas. So, um, I mean, and then um, in Italy and in uh, Germany, a number of people say we don't believe in cutting off SWIFT. Um, maybe SWIFT even isn't the best idea anyway because the Russians have been planning ahead for that for a while and probably have some alternative ways of doing that. On the other hand, if you sanction spare banks, so they can't, I mean, it's the biggest bank in Russia and it, by far, and if spare bank is sanctioned, they're not going to be able to do any real transactions with Europe, and that would be a pretty tough measure. Uh, I want to push back on Scott, hippie Scott the Dove, for a second about the bipartisan consensus. I, I I do think that there's a lot of space between, you know, the current ambivalence, uh, it seems like, uh, and troops, right? And as, you know, representing my former neocon brethren, uh, I do think that we can have a little bit more of a cowboy attitude about this and a more of a, I think, forward-leaning feeling about the importance of American leadership and Western leadership in the world and sending better signals to uh, Tomas's former country uh, he was president of and the other countries in the regions that we are there, that we're going to be, you know, of supplying weapons and supplying support uh, if this, you know, continues to expand. I, you know, I, I think that right now there's not a lot of fear in Moscow that, they're going to get much pushback. And I think that we could be signaling that there would be more pushback than there is, than there's going to be. And so I guess that would be my critique of the bipartisan consensus. I was thinking if you start off just sanctioning the people in DNR, they're all slapping their thighs saying, ha, 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 ha. Right. They're, they're, uh, they're, uh, they deal in, baskets of cash, not in, uh, not in wire transfers. Yeah, may, may, may I just, just jump in to say, with the United States as the foremost economic superpower in the, in the world has, is the ability to impose an enormous amount of pain on the Russian Federation um, and to exert political pressure on Europe in order to keep that um, going and it, it would just seem to be, to me at least, um, uh, a squandering of political energy to do anything that has fingerprints on it um, in the kinetic space as opposed to what OFAC is doing because OFAC does not piss people off. I guess OFAC I being the office, yep, uh, the office of, I, I'm sorry, the o OFAC is the is the part of the Department of Treasury that imposes Office sanctions. of Foreign Assets yeah. Control. So it doesn't seem to me 
like the message coming from the West, from the NATO countries, is that there's going to be any appetite for suffering economic pain on our end in order to deliver it to Russia. And that is, I guess, where I just wonder the limits of the sanctions from a financial standpoint, right? That when it comes to the pipeline, when it comes to the types of things that are going to affect the global economic system, I, I, I'm not feeling that any of these countries seem like they're willing to, to do that in order to really squeeze the Russians. And so I just, I'm, I, without knowing Putin's balance sheet or, or claiming to be an expert on this, I, I do wonder whether he's not all that worried about that. Yeah, I just want to say, uh, I, I, this is where the country of Germany becomes extremely important. Uh, oil is an international market. Gas, gas, because of the nature of pipelines, is inherently a regional market. And if the Germans want to buy a large amount of Russian gas, there is not that much that anybody can do about it. Um, um, you know, we can ask uh, and we can make trouble for Nord Stream 2 and the like. But at the end of the day, it's very hard to prevent Russia from selling gas to a neighboring country or a neighboring country that's, you know, only one country away, depending on how you how you route the gas that wants to buy it. And you can encumber that a bit. But there's, you know, at the end, like you can't do too much. Uh, all right, Jack Sullivan, the floor is yours. So my question isn't terribly much focused on Ukraine, but you all were talking about the dynamic within the Republican Party. Um, and for people who identify as Democrats, the question is what they can do to create a more responsible Republican Party other than trying to beat Republicans in elections. Given partisan polarization and the geographic sorting of people by party affiliation, uh, there are many offices where a Republican necessarily is going to win. Uh, and the question is whether there's anything Democrats can do to affect which Republicans are electable beyond, say, crossover voting in primaries and things like that. Tim? Is this still on? You're good. Can you hear me? Yep. Um, so to answer that question, I mean, look, there's not a whole lot anybody can do to change who Alabama is going to elect in the Senate. I mean, I think that there are strategic options. Like if you go back to, I think it's 2014, uh, Thad Cochran, relatively normal Republican running in a pri uh, running primary against um, Chris McDaniel, who's basically a white supremacist. Um, uh, my friend Stuart Stevens, who's a Lincoln Project now, you know, sort of helped coordinate a a, a campaign that was traditional Republicans with mostly black voters in Alabama voting in the primary to beat, or excuse me, in Mississippi, to beat out McDaniel. There are going to be certain examples like that. But a lot of times there just isn't going to be anything that we can do because of the sorting that you brought up. I think that there's one thing that the Democrats can do that the Democrats are not doing right now, which um, they don't seem to have any interest in doing, which I don't understand, which is try to elect more Joe Manchins. And right now, the Democrats are very interested in attacking Joe Manchin and making him the enemy rather than making him in a model. Um, I think that the agenda would be much better, more likely to be passed if there were five Joe Manchins right now than one, uh, because you'd only need to convince one of the five of them to do some, did the right thing. Um, and so that's something I wish the Democrats were looking more into. Uh, just really quick, also, to Scott's saying, on, and, and to Ben's point on the natural gas, I, this is in some ways there's the parallel to this here, right? Which is like, is there something that U.S. could do um, that would that's economic that would lessen uh, Russia's economic stranglehold? Well, yeah, we could start to try to figure out ways how the, how we could import LNG from Canada and the U.S. over to Europe. Uh, you can but there's not, there's no, yeah, you can't, right. But there doesn't appear to be a lot of interest on that within the Democratic Party uh, coalition in particular because of, and these are reasonable, right? These are environmental concerns, climate concerns. But, you know, sometimes when you're looking at bad options, um, I, I, would, I would be at least interested in seeing people try to explore that. 
Yeah, there's nothing worse for the environment than kinetic war, I would just point out. Right. Yeah, and uh, and also, uh, you know, if you're concerned about uh, long-term climate damage, uh, creating a modern economy in Ukraine actually matters just in terms of, of uh, it's much more likely to have, to be heating houses with cleaner energy. Uh, Susan Brewer, the floor is yours. Hey, um, I turned on the news um, in the middle of the day and was listening, you know, awaiting um, this notification of whether or not uh, Putin had come out to say that, you know, this business about the breakaway regions, um, what he was going to say about those. And that term is so disturbing. Um, and I just wonder, you know, if there's any hope that, um, you know, the broader news media is going to get a grip on, on the fact that a term like that reinforces uh, Putin's, seems to me, reinforces Putin's arguments about, um, and, you know, I just, anyway, there it is. So your, your, your question is an alternative to the term breakaway regions? Um, How about yes. Russian-occupied Ukrainian territory? Well, there you go. <laughs> but but how, you know, what is it with our, um, you know, way that we want to balance everything that's just so destructive to making clear what's happening? We seem to be confusing ourselves while we're trying to inform ourselves, and that just seems to be a problem that's going on in a lot of places that we need to take care of. Yeah, that's a good point. Tomas, what do you think? What is the proper terminology for the Donbass regions and for that matter for Crimea? Satrapy. <laughs> I think you're going to need to unpack that. A satrapy. That's like a, a satrap. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's exactly what it's. I mean, it's like a little area that is controlled by another country and that really is just kind of uh, yeah, not doing too well and it's yeah I mean it's just an extension of another of a big power so you know I mean I, I I'm curious for your thoughts on this Scott you're the international law uh, uh, scholar and why shouldn't these just be called Russian occupied Ukrainian territory the the Russian occupied province of Crimea, the Russian occupied uh, 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 Donetsk and Luhansk regions. Well, I would hope that that's what they were are called, um, because that does seem to be. But it isn't. They're well, called breakaway well, it, regions, oblasts. They're called almost anything but. Well, because. Um, well, I think this goes to the issue that we talked about earlier, which was that, as Tomas said, that um, Russian troops have been there, but kind of covertly. Um, but now they're there overtly. Um, the part uh, it, it it appears I don't read Russian, but it, it appears that the um, that the independence declarations also involved orders to. Um, uh, Russian troops to uh, go into uh, the two the two regions. So, um, it, insofar as that it's open now, um, uh, that there's an occupation going on, then that should be the proper um, uh, term rather than breakaway. Especially when you could, I mean, I mean, there's the question about who who the actors are here. But also there's the question about where the support is. And if you say that two thirds of, the, um, of these regions are, are, are actually not in favor of, um, of the occupation, that's even a better reason not to call um, it breakaway. It's more like torn away. I mean, there's one more element. I mean, Putin is in love with analogies in foreign policy. And one of the things that irks him the most was the Kosovo campaign, which followed a UN uh, right, uh, it's R2P, but it's, that stands for right to protect, 
And so the so the U.S. responsibility to protect responsibility, right? Yeah, went in to protect the people who protect them from the genocide perpetrated against the Kosovars. What he has now done in trying to create this is a fake evacuation of the civilian population of the Donbass. So he just, I mean, he's basically deporting these people to as far away as Magadan and Murmansk, one is way up in the north, the Magadans by the Pacific Ocean, saying he's protecting them from something that isn't happening, except for the men who are being called up, being conscripted, excuse me, conscripted from the age of 15 to 55 um, as cannon fodder. The other possible scenario is that following what they did say in Finland during the Winter War, where they had the what is called the Terioki regime, but you had basically a government, a fake government set up on a border town called Terioki <laughs> and say that's the government of Finland, that's what we recognize. And then and then the the rest of Finland, which is not, I mean. Finland itself is not legitimate, but we have this little government headed by Otto Kuzinen, who was a Stalinist Finn. He runs the, he's the real legitimate uh, government of Finland. Now, I mean, the thing, I mean, you can pull off and they have pulled off things like this and do the same thing in Ukraine saying, well, the legitimate government of Ukraine is actually in Donetsk. I mean, Right. I mean, they do all these things, right? But uh, but certainly the 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 legitimization of what they're doing right now in the in the Donbass is really trying to, I mean, show all of the and the and similarities with which don't exist, but nonetheless to make these uh, similarities or or narrative similarities with Kosovo twenty years ago. That's really interesting, Tony. The floor is yours. I'm having trouble unmuting you, though. Can you refresh your screen? In the meantime, I will read a question from somebody who has been unable to come on screen. James Puckett, my apologies for your uh, 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 for being unable to get you on. James writes, Tim, I tried asking this last time and wasn't able to, so I feel it's really important that we get James's question in this time. How do you feel about the recent presidential rankings that have Obama in the top 10? Has your opinion of him changed since the last 10 plus years of the Republican Party downfall? You campaigned vigorously against him and his policies. So I was interested in your views on the matter. Yeah, my positions on Obama haven't really changed so much as my positions on the other competitors on that presidential list have changed uh, some. And I always said that in the Obama-McCain race 08, if I ranked every presidential possibility on a scale from like one to a hundred, you know, John McCain for me was like an 88 and Obama was like a 49. And I thought that was like a pretty big gap, right? But I still had Obama's sympathies. Obviously, there were certain issues I agreed with him on. I thought it was very cool that he was the first black president, obviously. I was, the Palin thing moved McCain for me from like an 88 to like a 70, because if McCain died, then we were going to get a two. So, you know, that pushed uh, him and Obama closer together for me. Um, and, you know, little did I know, that I was very close in 2020 to having a choice between like a two and a 10 in uh, Bernie and Trump, right? So all of a sudden, uh, a 50 seemed pretty good. Uh, so I don't know. I, I think that if, especially if you look at, you know, my lifetime, I think, which is a better rating, and it's hard for me to even rate Reagan, but if you look at like H.W. Bush through the present day, I mean, I think you could make a good argument that Obama was the second best president behind my man H.W. Bush in that time in that time frame. And I think that obviously, if you look at the last two Republican presidents, you know, W, who I have personal sympathies for, but obviously it made some massive errors that are far outside the range of Obama's modest errors. Um, I don't think it's possible to rank Bush ahead of Obama, obviously. So. You know, I don't know about top 10 all time, but in my lifetime, 
he's the second, which isn't too bad. But that's mostly kind of grading on a curve because the other presidents have not been great. James, you popped up as soon as I said I couldn't get you. So uh, thanks for your question. Uh, I, I, Thank you, Ben. I, um, I just wanted to say really quickly, uh, everyone, hello. And Tim, I'm a big fan of yours, brother. Um, I uh, was watching thanks, you man. on Drink and Talking. Do you remember that at all, man? Drinking and Talking? Stein show that you were on. Oh my God. Yeah. That's I was in a really a dark emotional place when I did that podcast. So if people want to hear me at my lowest, you can go find that in the archives. Well, I would say, no, no, no. I would not say you came ever across like that. I was very surprised actually when I found out that you worked for Romney after that uh, discussion. Cause I was like, this guy's really nice. How could he for Mitt Romney? But, um, I always was a big fan years around um you i remember you well we lost james tony this time for real the floor is yours looks like it hey just quickly that was not what i was expecting from tony so i'm gonna read tony's question as well um, but do it in that voice yeah we are waiting for regarding economic so what are we waiting for uh regarding economic sanctions against putin and his cronies do we have to wait until ukrainians are dying before we tell the oligarchs they can no longer ask access their u.s dollars and uh new york london dachas should their kids still be attending Ivy League colleges? Tomas, is there any good reason for uh, the hard line that the administration has taken on not doing these sanctions preemptively? Not that uh, I know of. <laughs> I mean, so you're sympathetic to Zelensky yeah, and the. What yeah, are you I mean, I don't for? think you need, as I, I mean, as I said earlier. You don't need to, um, in fact, you, I would argue you shouldn't impose them all at once uh, and you, you titrate them as in chemistry, you know, like you do this, we do that, and you do this, and we do that, you stop doing that, we take this off. I mean, and so, I mean, it's, you know, shaping their behavior, um, I think, is the way to go, uh, but certainly you have to make them feel genuine pain. Uh, because otherwise it's kind of like, okay, yeah, well, we can live with that. And also, I mean, one reason you, they, they should target more the people who are, you should definitely target the people who are enjoying the West with a lot of money, with their yachts and their villas in Southern France and, you know, and mansions in London. And Can we house Ukrainian refugees in yachts and mansions seized from... From... Well, that's one way of doing it. I had a piece about a month and a half ago yelling at the European Union uh, for not taking into account the fact that um, Ukraine, A, borders on four EU countries, Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, and Romania, and that unlike all of the, the refugees, the two and a half million who came in boats from Syria, they live on the borders of these, there's no sea. And on top of that, if you have a Ukrainian passport, you have visa-free travel to the EU. So these are not defended borders. You from don't have civilian to apply for asylum right away. You just, I'm just coming for the weekend to Bialystok or something, right? I mean, I mean, that's, uh, that's, which is a lot different from, you know, you have to immediately apply for asylum and you're housed in some kind of warehouse somewhere in Lampedusa in southern uh, Italy, in the island. But rather, you're just coming legally across the border. That may change if there's, a, but that, of course, would be kind of a bad news. Like, oh, no, we're going to scrap Ukraine visa-free travel because they are refugees. But, you know, this could range up to like millions of people. I mean, it right. really is a function of how bad it is and how far they go, because if they do a little bit in eastern Ukraine, then you're going to get a certain number. If they go all out on taking over Ukraine, you're going to have, you know, you can imagine a quarter of the population fleeing. And it's and just for those who don't know, Ukraine is the largest country in Europe. 
in geography and it has 44 million people in it. It is a no joke, large country. All right, uh, last question goes to Zunyi and then I have a uh, uh, important announcement uh, for President Ilvis, how important is it to continue the Panama Papers and FinCEN investigations in order to root out the financial corruption in Russia and around the world? What do you make of Boris Johnson saying he will leak financial corruption in the UK if Putin invades, but not just leak it because it is the right thing to do? Um, what do you make of it? Is, is, is the well, Anne Applebaum... This is all about corruption thesis. Uh, I tend right? to agree with it, but I, I would say too. that first of all, it's vital that these investigations keep going and the things become public, A. B, I was really flabbergasted by this, his statement, which is that if you invade, then we will do something. <laughs> yeah. But uh, if you don't invade, we'll all keep it quiet, which is right. kind of the problem in the UK. So I was, so I was not thrilled by that statement. The problem in London is that like half the city and all of its best real estate is empty because Russian oligarchs uh, own it and use it like twice a year. All right, Tomas Ilvis, you're a great Estonian. Tim Miller, you're a great American. Thanks for joining us. And I have a special announcement uh, uh, regarding uh, Joel Woodward, who I just happened to have brought on the screen. Uh, on Friday, you will, those of you who were here on the show will remember that Joel showed up and lived up to his name, uh, Joel the Nudge, and uh, nudged me to get together with him and his wife, Brenda, and go uh, cross-country skiing. Joel is, among other things, a former cross-country ski racer and head of coaching in the state of Minnesota. Is that right? Yep. Um, and so uh, uh, I went out in the bitter Minnesota cold uh, to a frozen lake uh, to go cross-country skiing with Joel uh, and Brenda, and it was a total delight. It was brutal. Um, and uh, I just wanted to say follow up on the events of Cheese Night on Friday. Thank you, Joel, for... Uh, for uh, taken me out into the the frozen tundra north uh, and i and i just have to say that you were a tremendous sport because one it was freezing two there was wind and the skiing conditions were horrible <laughs> well it was good fun i went out to minnesota to do some speed skating and visit a baby i did not go out to minnesota to go cross-country skiing but it was a delight and it was super it was, pleasure it was super fun to meet uh, and Brenda, and let's do it again sometime. Anytime you're in town, man. All right. Thanks, Joel. And that brings us to the end of one of the most depressing shows I hope we're ever going to have. Um, uh, it's going to be, uh, I mean, Scott's going to have to write, rewrite his book because um, like interstate war is back. Um, and uh you know, uh, it's going to create a lot of work for Scott and Ona Hathaway. Um, and there's going to be civilian casualties associated with that work. Um, uh, it's also going to suck um, for lots of other reasons. Uh, we're not allowed to have fun anymore, but we will be back on Wednesday. And uh, we actually have a show scheduled for Wednesday. So let me uh, pull it up so that Ah, yes. Uh, Wednesday is the day that uh, we are having uh, Rabbi Danya Rutenberg on. She does uh, has done a lot of work on the history of uh, anti-Semitism, a subject of which uh, we've gotten several requests from the audience to do a show on. So she's going to join me and GDF uh, Wednesday evening. Uh, and by then, um, uh, with any luck, there will still be a sovereign nation of Ukraine. And until then, uh, Scott Shapiro. We can't have fun anymore, but we can have two new independent republics in the world, which is uh, pretty bad. Um, uh, I, would, I, I, would, I would just simply say that like people who are dissing international law just point out that like we've had the 
like news about the president of the United States flush classified thing uh, uh, materials down the toilet. Um, which yeah, is domestic a, law is not looking so hot. Either. Yeah, right, right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. It is in the nature of law to have um, procedures for dealing with its violation. Um, and so, what I would hope um, is that, um, despite the fact that there are severe violations of incredibly important uh, rules, that the international community respond in a sober, constant and resolute manner to this outrage. And if you have a high power uh, projector, uh, there is this guy in Washington, he's one of my heroes, I forget his name though, um, who used to uh, go around and project the text of the uh, 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 relevant constitutional provisions onto the Trump Hotel. Um, and uh once he you know the the uh the emoluments clause and the uh and it was beautiful and so i think if you have a high power projector they're pretty expensive but i'm sure some of you have them go project blue and yellow onto the russian embassy it's like a big white marble building it's almost like a movie screen it's just asking for it there's a hotel right across the street i'll pay for the room just Turn that thing blue and yellow. Uh, uh, yeah. I